Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I mean, it's time to bring in Michael McKee. And he'll be with us over at our Africa Summit today as well, Bloomberg Surveillance, and George Goncalves joining us as well. Michael, you stayed up riveted at 11 a.m. I'm still reading team coverage in the New York Post about Brangelina. You didn't even look at Brangelina yesterday. You looked at the Bank of Japan. What'd you boring. Learn? I'm so boring. What'd you learn? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Uh, you were just quoting Fran uh, Ezra Prasad. I'm going to quote Strother Martin from Cool Hand Luke. Oh, what we have here is a failure to communicate. Yeah. And that's the problem for central banks. Take a look at what the Bank of Japan has done over the years. They keep promising, promising, promising they're going to generate inflation. Well, there's inflation year, expectations yeah, in yeah, Japan. Yeah. They're hovering right above zero. You can see where they went down when they went to negative interest rates. It, they're not getting there. No matter what they do, they are not getting there. And that is a real problem for the Japanese. The other problem that they this have... Is, this is a failure of tools. Is it a failure to communicate? But if I tell you, look, I want inflation at 2%, and actually you never get 2%. Is it a failure to communicate or is it that actually you just can't get there? Well, that's the next point I was going to make. Do the tools even work? You take a look at what the Japanese have done. They have gone to this extraordinary monetary policy, expanded the balance sheet and done all kinds of negative interest rates and other things and they can't get bank lending up. I mean, this program is designed to well, mitigate the effects of on banks of negative interest rates so they will lend more. But look at that lending channel there. Yeah. It's just flat. There is no demand. Nice They're attacking Very the nice. supply side. Nice They're not attacking the demand side. Right. And that gets into the communication well, issue. We demand uh, an opinion of someone from Nomura, the great Japanese bank. George Konkavas agreed to stop by this morning. What was the reaction in Tokyo of your bank to these announcements? So, actually, quite, quite interesting. You look at the market reaction and how things have, have, have worked out. Volatility has been relatively low. You're not seeing major kind of swings here. So, I think expectations going into it was right. there's a lot of moving parts, as, as, as Mike's described. And it's going to be hard to get it, get it right, but at the same time, they didn't really deliver a message that's going to be um, you know, terrible for the markets to digest going forward. This idea that they're, they're out of tools, they still are relying upon some sort of conven uh, enhancing conventional type easing. They could have went to the helicopter money, okay, which, is, which is which everyone feared. I'll agree. They didn't go yeah. to the helicopter. But the right. distinction, George, that we learned in the last half hour, and Mike, you addressed this as well, the idea that they've gone beyond negative rate policy in QE. Right. Thank you, Alberto Gallo. Are you and Cameron Watts saying, no, Gallo's wrong. They're still utilizing a negative rate policy within this new policy. Which side of the fence are you on? Look, I still think the fact that it's still as a viable option means they can go to negative rates. But they've... <clears throat> chosen to, to be more yield targeting and forcing money out there. Um, and, and I think just because that's happening doesn't mean we, they're, they're admitting it doesn't work. They're just looking for, uh, you know, actually 
taking away some of this pressure that's been happening from the asymmetries of the QE design. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and Mike, I mean, I wonder whether, you know, I, I know you say, George, that it's conventional, <clears throat> but actually it's really experimental. I mean, you could argue that they're, they're, I mean, these tweaks, right, which the markets may be a bit disappointed about, it is a whole new way of doing things. And, and this is as experimental as you get until you do helicopter money. Yeah, oh, and which would be the ultimate experiment. But at right. this point, the consensus of analysts seems to be that the Bank of Japan is recognizing that they don't have anything left to change the game. What they can do is keep policies in place, but they're waiting for the fiscal authorities because monetary <clears throat> policy has sort of reached the limits okay. of its effectiveness. Let's look at the Euclidean space here. Let's bring up this chart again. We're going to show you a lot. This is the Japanese yield curve. And Georgia, Mike, jump in here. The red circles where Angelina gave up on bread. Uh, no, wait. No, the red circles is a 10-year <laughs> yield. The 10-year yield is negative now. Do either of you have any experience of a nation pushing up a yield that far out the curve? So look, think about this. This is a ticking a page for the 1930s. Yield targeting. Thank you. Yield targeting um, is it comes with a host of issues. I mean, at, at what point do people actually you know give up actually act, you know, having activity in that that sector of the curve? But I mean, I think that now that they've drawn the line in the sand at the zero line, it's going to be see, it's going to be interesting how, how they defend that that zero bound and. Um, well, I tell you what, uh, the reason I woke up to look at the Bank of Japan was I heard the enormous sound of Milton Friedman turning over in his grave. Next year, the Bank of Japan will own about 50% of their sovereign bond market, and they are going to be controlling the yield curve. The government is deciding what prices <coughs> should be, not the markets, and that's well, astounding. Right. Yeah. Again, what I would say to that, though, what we experienced in the 1930s, and again, history does not have to repeat itself, but when you know you have a buyer at a certain level, then you don't feel the urgency to actually have to sell to the central bank. So in a way, by them making the monetary base flexible, they don't have to supersize and continue to buy bonds as much. People might actually hold the bonds, and, and that might reduce right. this kind of, you know, you know, intervention kind of mood and feeling in the markets. George, is, is it actually obvious that the longer-term bonds are the place to be because overall they just higher, you know, offer higher yields? And so it seems like a no-brainer and is it going to be overcrowded? Look, so I think, uh, again, the combination of this target and, and not really focusing beyond the 10-year sector, so the 20- and the 30-year sector in Japan will offer some, interest, you know, some yield interest for those locally. It does play a, a role back to the U.S. and what it does to U.S. Treasuries and U.S. rates and European rates. Quite frankly, everything is connected. So if you, know, you get a situation where the locals in Japan can continue to buy their own paper without having right. to compete okay. with the Bank of Japan, then our yields can actually go up in a very perverse way. This is critical. And again, both of you, George, let's go to you first. This is absolutely critical, your comment, that this harkens back to 30s policy, which is a very important statement. Within the debate over Phillips curve, modern economics, versus some form of neo-fisherian view out of the 20s and the 30s, will this policy last night affect real and, most importantly, animal spirit, nominal GDP, and numerous Japan? Ultimately, they want to get real rates low, and this, this will drive real rates. If nominals don't really go anywhere, then real rates are going to stay low, and hopefully that creates capital formation. And Hopefully. Mike, hopefully. that's the operative word well, It goes back well. to the second chart that I showed. There's no demand. Bring up the second point. chart again. You can make yields low. You can make money cheap, which the Bank of Japan has been trying to do for years. But unless people feel there's a return to their investment, they're not going to spend. And right now, they are not adding to spending. George, I'm going to be in the timeout chair probably for the rest of my life. But I don't care, Tom Keen, because I don't want to go back to what happened in the 1930s. This is George a and I world. do.
<laughs> That's what they look, did last night. This is it, like globalization, right? It, it, everything's in play. Like it's not a nice That's a good like point. the 1930s yeah. was. This is a BOJ yeah. that also have a higher end because they're a haven and they're fighting devaluations across the world. It's a different world than it was. I strongly agree that, that, that the, 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 the flows are different. The currency perspective and the flows and the fact that we have a dollar reserve system still in place makes it completely different from the 1930s. But the way that they are targeting yields harkens back to that time, peri right. time period. And it, will, could, it could, could come with the same sort of issues, maybe actually support local markets better. So I, I, okay. we've had a lot of flows coming into U.S. bond markets because of yeah. these foreign investors. This might actually you know, challenge that. Might. One interesting point that, that should be noted here is that this is a shift from the Bank of Japan. They're not targeting a weaker yen here. This is domestically led. Yeah. And so you're not going to see a dramatic fall in the yen, which takes some of the pressure off the Fed. The Fed may have more impact on Japan today than the Bank of Japan has on the U.S. Very quickly here. I'm sorry. This chart says stronger yen. Bring it up here right now. And that pennant over on the right side. George Congalvis, what's the number of call on yen after what we saw last night? Quickly. Oh, we still think that you know, the yen's going to trade within a range. It's going to be hard to really break above okay. the 110. This was incredibly smart. Great conversation. There's no better person to talk to about the Bank of Japan, its impacts around the world, and the Federal Reserve meeting later today that Abby Joseph Cohen, Goldman Sachs Global Markets Institute president, she joins us now. Abby, thanks for uh, joining us on such an important day. I want to start with the Bank gentlemen. of Japan. <laughs> I want to start with the Bank of Japan. To me, I, there are a couple of big things going on here. One is that the government of Japan is going to be controlling prices. They're going to run the yield curve, which is normally a function of markets, which strikes me as an extraordinary distortion. Uh, and two, they seem to have given up on policy achieving its goals and rather seem to be trying to mitigate the impact of policy while they wait for the fiscal authorities to act. Um, I guess what Tom would say is discuss. <laughs> I will be delighted to discuss it, um, and you are raising, obviously, some very important issues. But let's keep in mind something that we often forget to talk about, and that is that the extremely flat and, in some places, negative yield curve in Japan has been creating enormous problems uh, for insurance companies uh, and also for pension funds. And uh, the same thing would be happening here and is happening here, uh, but to a lesser degree. Uh, you know, keep in mind that that uh, long-term investors like life insurers uh, and those big pension plans, and they are quite large uh, in Japan, the largest one being the government system, uh, the Japan postal system, really suffering with these negative yields. And what they're trying to do is show that they will continue quantitative ease, but not at the super long maturities. And that's the way they're going to try to, to bend the yield curve. The other thing that I think is important to recognize is that they didn't really step away from some of their other stated goals, which is to boost inflation. And that, to me, was a very important part of their statement, saying that they still continue to aim not just for the 2%, which was the original goal, but they'd like to overshoot it. But they've also given themselves more running room because they're spending uh, less focus, if you will, at least in that statement, on when they want to get to that 2%. Uh, we think that what they're aiming to do is to get the longer yield 
yields uh, into positive territory, maybe even that 10-year yield uh, uh, into positive territory. You know, just a few basis points, but that's better than the negative rates uh, that they've had this far. Yeah, but here's the thing. Um, we were quoting Strother Martin from Cool Hand Luke. Uh, what we have here is a failure to communicate. They want to get inflation to 2%. Now they say we're willing to get it over 2%, but it's going the other direction. Uh, our sense is that that is because nobody wants to feel that when they get to 2%, all of a sudden they'll reverse policy. So what they're basically saying is our goal is to lift inflation, and we may not adjust uh, policy when we get to 2%. Keep in mind that there are many factors other mm. than central bank policy that will drive inflation. Uh, and in this world, for example, over the next year or two, uh, we and many other firms and, and uh, investors are expecting energy prices to rise. Um, and if, in fact, energy prices rise, we will begin to see uh, movements right. up in inflation, not not just in Japan, but also in the United States and many other countries. Abby, there's an Abby Joseph Cohen that a lot of our audience doesn't know, and that is the Mathy Abby. I want to go there uh, right now. And the idea of any central bank using two-time continuum, one is going out the x-axis on the yield curve and trying to manipulate father out to go at the margin to a seven-year manipulation versus a five-year or to a 10-year manipulation versus a seven-year. And then the other is the chronic nature, the time function of policy, the inertial force from the short-term impact to medium-term and long-term impact. How discrete and separate are those two ideas of time? Terrific question, Tom, and let's complicate it even further. Please. And, rec and recognize that <laughs> Please. That's what policy, we do here. <laughs> absolutely. Fiscal policy has a still longer time frame. Uh, and so yeah. when we talk about the BOJ perhaps wanting to wait until the fiscal policy initiatives have some time to have an impact, uh, they could be waiting, you know, quite a while because what we know uh, over history is that monetary policy is the quickest way to impact rates the quickest way to impact markets, and then let's add a fourth complication, which is not so much time, but the fact that we're now talking about international capital flows. So much of what's been happening with regard to central bank policy, not just for the BOJ, but for the Fed, ECB, and so on, is recognizing that you can change policy in one place, and it has, I'll call it a ripple effect, sometimes right. it's a tidal wave effect, uh, in other places. And one thing to keep in mind is that the BOJ, in the face of the general belief that the Fed is probably not going to do very much uh, today, uh, we can talk about that later, um, well, maybe they didn't want to right. do anything more aggressive than what they've done uh, today. I wanna, but I, I keep in mind, this, this yield curve bending is a really big deal. This is right. something... Uh, the yield, in a, in a, I, I get it, Abby, but what's so important here to our global audience is are they doing this within a belief that harkens back to Heilbronner and Bernstein of literally the 50s or at least the 80s pre-Plaza Accord? Mike, we're at the plaza. We're at the plaza. It's the plaza accord. <laughs> but, but, but Abby, is, are they applying old economics for a modern global economy? I think they're applying new economics um, in terms of trying to use tools that perhaps would not have been uh, conceived, uh, certainly pre-plaza. 
you know, what we're talking about, of course, is this exchange rate movement where there's more flexible rates and so on. Uh, At this point, uh, Japan, yes, uh, would like a somewhat weaker yen, which is what they wanted at the time of the Plaza Accord, because that would help their real productive side of the economy. From the Bloomberg Philanthropies and U.S. Department of Commerce, U.S. Africa Business Forum, the Plaza Hotel in New York. Michael McKee and Tom Keene, thrilled to start this hour with Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs. Abby, we were talking about the new economy and the new macroeconomics, and it is within a blindingly international uh, floating currency uh, market. How does that filter over to your expertise in equities? We see equities higher is it a bubble or is it something else given our modern economics? Tom, my view is that this is not a bubble um, and for a variety of reasons. Uh, first of all, you're absolutely right that we can no longer look at any market um, in just a domestic setting. And so from a, a more global perspective, we have to recognize that U.S. companies are performing quite well, uh, not just in domestic markets, but also doing well outside the United States. Uh, number two, our economy, while there is disappointment that the second derivative, that is the rate of change of improvement, is not as good as it might have been, say, a year or so ago, it's not bad. Um, and our growth um, uh, is, is actually better than in many other countries. Uh, number three, we are also now seeing real gains um, in our labor markets. Uh, while the unemployment rate is kind of stuck uh, at about 4.9%, under the surface, we are seeing more jobs being created. We're seeing that wages are rising. And that very important report last week that said median family incomes are up. And they rose very substantially uh, in 2015. That says something good about the long-term and sustainable nature of, of, of U.S. growth. And when we take a look at valuation models to say, well, how do various markets stack up? Uh, the most important conclusion that we have discussed uh, before on air uh, is that fixed income markets in many places are just overpriced. Uh, negative interest rates uh, may prove to be something of a folly uh, for many countries. Um, and maybe the benefit that some nations are seeing is really through the foreign trade uh, mechanism. Um, because the negative rates in some cases, particularly in Europe, have led to uh, declines in the currency, enhancing the competitive nature uh, in in their export markets. Uh, So when we take a look at U.S. equities, specific uh, to your question, um, you know, U.S. equities are, you know, comfortably in the range that we think is fair value for this year. Uh, based upon our our outlook for earnings and so on. And if we're correct that there is no recession on the horizon, we would expect U.S. stock prices to continue to move higher, not in a straight line, but to drift up. Given uh, that, um, it strikes me that you've just made a case for Janet Yellen to raise rates today. Um, There are um, a number of reasons why um, our team and many other investors think that the Fed may decide to hold its fire um, uh, today. And clearly the markets are signaling that the probability for rate rise 
today is not all that high, although it's not bad um, in terms of the probability yeah, uh, when well, we get if, closer if, if, to the if, end of the year. The, the reason if, uh, that they might hold back today um, is that uh, the most recent economic data have not been as robust as they might like, number one. Number two, they're also focusing in on the global environment. Years ago, when I was an economist at the Fed, uh, in the research area, um, tracking business conditions, fewer than 10% of our staff focused in on the non-U.S. Uh, economies. Um, I'm not sure what exactly the new number is, but it's more like 50-50, maybe even more people looking at the international side. So this is a Fed that makes its decisions based not just on the U.S., but also the global environment, um, and the global environment a little more sluggish, as you know, the OECD uh, recently lowering its global uh, growth forecast. But if we take a look toward December, we think uh, there's an increased probability of a rise. Mm -hmm. And what we'd be looking for today um, in terms of uh, the Fed statement um, is right. you know, have they made an adjustment, for example, downward in this year's GDP forecast? Um, and uh, we'd also be looking right. to see it changes perhaps in the unemployment uh, forecast, well, not for this year, <clears throat> but for next. Abby, thank you so much for getting us started in this hour. Abby Joseph Cohen with and, uh, Goldman Sachs. And, and for the plug, he <clears throat> said the OECD. The OECD's Catherine Mann is going to talk about that report Abby just mentioned yeah. on our show at the top of the hour. Yeah, and, and with their markdown as well, I should say. From the Plaza Hotel, the U.S.-Africa Business Forum, this is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Bloomberg Philanthropies, the Department of Commerce, co-hosting the second U.S.-Africa Business Forum. And someone who is going to be right in the middle of it all is Bob Diamond. You may remember him as the former head of Barclays. Since he left Barclays in 2012, he's been the head of Atlas Mara, which is a holding company that owns a number of banks across the continent of Africa. The idea um, to uh, take advantage of the growth prospects of the continent which unfortunately, uh, I don't think I'm going to insult you by saying this, <laughs> have not proved out over the last few years. And Atlas Mara has uh, suffered a little bit, but uh, I presume you're looking at this as a longer-term bet. And so tell me what is going to drive growth in Africa uh, in a world where even the United States can't generate growth. Well, the U.S. is generating some growth, but you're right, not what we expected. When uh, Ashish Takar, the Mara Group, and our firm, Atlas Merchant Capital, um, made a decision to form Atlas Mara two and a half years ago, all of our investors knew, we knew, that this was not a one or two year investment. This was not a passive investment. We're looking five to seven years down the road. We're looking at an opportunity to acquire multiple banks in 10 to 15 countries. Uh, once we bought those banks, to protect them, if I can use that phrase, fix them, uh, drive uh, changes in the credit process, drive changes in how to get lending to small businesses and to consumers. Uh, and only then would we be able to really grow those banks and integrate them into one uh, single sub-Saharan Africa institution. And that's what the ultimate goal is. 
Um, I don't think we could have found more challenges in the first two years with the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't if think we, there's any argument with that. If, yeah. if, we, if we wanted to set ourselves some challenges... <laughs> we're at the Plaza Hotel. We can talk this... Bob had to get trained at Barclays for challenges before he faced <laughs> what he's seen. Yeah, you, you so, you know, commodities turned around. So, right. so we launched in December of 2013, and by the next summer, the uh, commodity super cycle was, uh, was in deterioration. Currencies were weakening, weakening versus the dollar. European banks were pulling out because of Basel uh, III, the balkanization, bringing capital back home. The Chinese investment was at least slowing, if not retracing. Um, but as we look out at the medium to long term, this is giving us better and better and better opportunities to acquire, to fix, uh, and to Warren drive Buffett's performance. blood in the streets. Now uh, is the time to Well, if, if, if you are going to invest and if you still believe in Africa rising, which in my mind is really around demographics and around trade and around uh, economy and jobs, you know, the population in Africa is young, but it's also very, very entrepreneurial. Uh, by the mid-2030s, it'll be the largest labor force in the world. Um, there's over 400 companies in sub-Saharan Africa with over a billion in revenues. Those companies generally grow both revenues and profits faster than their global counterparts. It's a lot of positives, but I will tell you, it's hard work. I'm, I, you, you gave us that nice long list of all the things that went wrong, and I'm just wondering what it's like to be your personal assistant and come in every morning and go, uh, Bob, <laughs> this is the problem. We're talking with uh, Bob Diamond from uh, Atlas Mara. They own banks, uh, what are you, nine countries now? We're in uh, seven countries with eight banks. Seven countries around uh, Africa, and uh, we'll continue our conversation here from the U.S. Africa Business Forum. Bloomberg Philanthropies and the U.S. Department of Commerce putting on a day-long program here at the Plaza Hotel in New York. And this is Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keene at the Plaza for the U.S. Africa Business Forum with Bob Diamond of Atlas Mara. Um, as you mentioned, um, you get seven countries. You're moving on. Uh, one of the criticisms of your results so far is that what you've put together is an agglomeration of small banks that don't have the size to generate enough profits to make it worthwhile. So where do you go from here? You know, that's, that's when one of our challenges. So uh, in uh, Zambia is an example, Mike. Our first acquisition, which was part of, <clears throat> excuse me, a five-country acquisition with Bank ABC, we recognized that the bank that we had there was not in the top three or four. Uh, so in June, we announced our second acquisition in Zambia, which is FBZ. Uh, we're now combining those two banks, and we'll be in the top tier. So exactly to your point, we've been very, very public and very open on this. In no country... Do we want to operate where we're not in the top tier? And if we, as a result of a multi-country acquisition, right. have a presence in a country where we're not in the top tier, we either have a clear plan to get there or we exit. Right. So my, I agree with you. My plan is to have a cocktail with you at the Dorchester Hotel in London <laughs> where people will lean forward and listen to Bob Diamond about the heart of the matter for the Western investment world. And that is, you go back to Bill Easterly at NYU, you go back to Jeff Sachs at Columbia, and the arch debate over African FDI, African investment, and the word that we always end with is corruption. What have you learned in your tactical work in Africa about an improved rule of law, an improved arm's length contract? Two things I think are critical, Tom. One is, as you heard me say, there are 10 to 15 countries that we're focused on. That's it. They get to the majority of the banking population that right. we want to serve. They're the winners. But they're also the countries where they have rule of law. So there's 30 countries where we're, we have no plans to enter. 
The second thing, and I think we really got this this right, is we listed on the London Stock Exchange on mm -hmm. the big board. Uh, we have all the governance that goes along with that. And as a London listed public company, there's no option for us to get involved in some of those activities. Right. Often we don't even get approached on it, but frankly we have a very good answer, which is we're listed in the London Stock Exchange, we have very clear governance, it's a non-starter. Rule of law, important, but it must be difficult to try to put together a banking group with a number of different economic models in the countries that you serve and varying levels of governance. Uh, how do you deal with that? So regional integration is one of the things that um, I would say I'm most pleased about and, and want to foster as, as much as I can and we can. So in the East African community, for example, um, uh, President Kagame, President Kenyatta, and the other presidents in the East African community, they're breaking down trade blocks between countries. They're making it easier for, for labor to move mm -hmm. across border. They're building highways, so transport. You know, one of the things that's, that's a fascinating, fascinating number to think about is only 20% of the trade in Africa is intra-Africa. That's silly, and there's a lot of internal blockades to that, right. creating a lot more imports from outside of Africa. Right. That is such an opportunity, and I think today the African leaders, and it's a big part here of regional integration, are really thinking about the opportunities in regional trading blocks. How will you hedge the clear and present danger of foreign exchange? I mean, it's a Ken Rogoff floating world right now. Uh, you've been buffeted by four standard deviation moves here and there. Is it an active day-to-day -day hedge in exchange? I mean, you hedged at Barclays. You had a whole team there. But this is a, like almost hedging on steroids within the dynamics of Africa. Well, and the currencies, whether you're at Barclays or whether you're at Atlas Mara, uh, don't have the liquidity of the major currencies to start with. So we have a treasury under Mike Chris right. Ellis. Uh, it's run centrally. All of the currency business we do with our customers, and a key part of this is many of the small businesses and medium businesses have the same challenges. They need to hedge out the currencies. So do, are, they, are they dollar sterling based? I mean, it goes back to original sin, Barry Eichengreen and Ricardo Hausman. Are you dealing in a sterling or dollar basis or do you deal in their currencies? W within the countries, we're dealing in local currencies. Right. For the equity of the firm, we're in dollars and right. we want to hedge the equity, but we don't hedge the ongoing business in the countries because it reflects um, uh, the domestic currency. Can't let you go without asking you about Barclays. You been in the hunt for Barclays Africa I was properties. I about the Red Sox. Why Barclays? <laughs> Red Sox sounds better. Yeah, Red Sox sounds better. Six, six games in a row, Tom. Come on. Four good. games up, Very six good. games yes. in a row. There's a, there's a commercial coming up in a moment. You two guys can talk about the Red Sox in a minute. Maybe the Patriots. You, you were in a, you're in a consortium trying to buy uh, the last 50% of Barclays Africa, which would be a big prize for your bank. Carlisle, part of that consortium, dropped out. Are you still in the hunt without them? Carlisle uh, decided not to proceed uh, for a number of reasons, including the regulators were quite clear that they would prefer, whether it's with Atlas Merchant Capital or with Carlisle, private equity not be a part of a bid for a majority. So that was uh, many, many weeks ago, and, and uh, we've moved on. We're still, how could anyone not be focused on an opportunity when a business as strong as Barclays Africa is out there? I wouldn't comment other than that, but anybody involved in Africa would be focused on the opportunity of, of Barclays Africa. Well, uh, do you have any, can you tell us where you are in that bid, what, what the time frame is and what, what happens from here? No, but the Red Sox have won six in a row. The Patriots <laughs> won their first two games without Brady. Bob Diamond <laughs> All right. is, is Jimmy chair, Garoppolo is, is down. What do you do now? Is Chair Yellen, <laughs> is Chair Yellen the central banker to Africa? 
Uh, that's a really, really good question. There's no question that the dollar is the dominant currency in the world and, mm -hmm. and is the dominant uh, reference currency mm -hmm. for Africa. So what happens in the U.S. and what happens with the dollar has a huge mm -hmm. impact. Absolutely. Well, Mike and I are thrilled to take those Atlas Merchant Capital tickets, Cubs, Red Sox, World <laughs> Series at Wrigley Field. Bob Diamond, thank you so <laughs> Thanks, much. Thanks, uh, here at our uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies and Department of Commerce, U.S.-Africa Business Forum. Of course, all of this wrapped around the 71st session of the U.N. General Assembly. Well, among those uh, who are watching, of course, very closely the U.K. economy and economies around the world, Catherine Mann. Catherine Mann, with, uh, as many of you have heard me say over the years, a definitive and important book. Kathy, you wrote this when you were 12. Uh, is a trade deficit sustainable? We know that. But um, in, in the decades on from is the trade deficit sustainable, you have been proven correct in that it is a new economy. Uh, we'll get to the OECD markdowns today on global GDP, but... All of the original economics that you did not teach at Brandeis, um, is this a new globalization? Is this a new financial economic system that we are in? Well, we do focus on the uh, on the trade side of things, sort of a traditional uh, focus in the economic outlook. And we note that um, it's really a flat uh, situation on trade, um, a declining um, global value chains and unraveling of global value chains. And although maybe many people in the political spectrum might think that's a good idea, a fact that we see that it's a very damaging for growth and it's damaging for productivity. Uh, we do a scenario whereby if we were to return to the good days where not only was trade uh, rising quickly um, on, on the back of negotiations and so forth, but so is global growth. And we could recover half of our way towards uh, the good days of productivity growth. So that's the traditional kind of trade view. Mm -hmm. we, also look in, we also look in the report um, on the financial side, uh, and, and we've got concerns there as well. Well, uh, you've, you've got concerns that uh, underpin your latest global growth outlook, which is not particularly good. Uh, you see no. growth flat ticking down a little bit. Uh, what's, what's driving that? Just a sort of ennui in the global economy, or is it Brexit, or is it the possibility that uh, the Republican nominee could be elected here in the United States? Well, we've got five years now of um, growth rates that are in the global economy that are about 3%, and we call this the low-growth trap. And, and the reason why we call it a trap is because there aren't market signals being generated in the real economy to promote business investment and to promote uh, deepening trade. And if you don't have investment and you don't have trade, then you're not going to have growth either. Now, the consequences of that uh, coming down from 3% uh, global growth to what was our cruising speed of 4% over the previous decades, mm -hmm. that represents a real decline in the capacity of economies to deliver increases in living standards that are widely shared. Right. So 3% just isn't good enough, and there aren't market signals uh, to get business uh, and consumers to get uh, back on track. Mm -hmm. That's why we uh, focus on uh, a pathway for policymakers to make the difference and get the global economy growing again. I've got about eight ways to go here, and we'll do that in our next section, Dr. Mann. You put Canada in the timeout chair. What did Canada yeah. do wrong? 
they had a wildfire, a very, very big wildfire, the Fort Montgomery uh, fire, and that um, undermined their uh, production of uh, a key export um, of oil. So both with production down in the domestic economy and down yeah. for exports as well. So they're in, they're in the timeout chair because of, of data, not because they've done the wrong thing. Or, in fact, Canada is, is one of the poster childs for embracing the type of fiscal expansion along with structural reforms that we're arguing that other countries should do as well. Right. Right. Um, Dr. Mann, then if I look at that, it is an exogenous shock, to say the least. Is your OECD report, does that set us up for greater effect of a given exogenous shock? Well, when you're at uh, low rates of growth, um, any small shocks are most like are more likely to put you into the negative column. Uh, yeah. That's why we think that policymakers really have to step up. It is a good day to speak to an adult in the room. At the beginning of the financial crisis, Christine Lagarde was at CFR in Washington and begged for adults in the room. One of the leading adults has been Catherine Mann of Brandeis, and of course now at the OECD. And Kathy, as you brilliantly do in your new report, you have the courage to look at the financial system into our challenged economics. You have a chart on pension funds, their funding gap, their actuarial non-assumption that is outright grim. Are we at a stage now where all economists really begin to fold in the financial effects you highlight? Well, I think that everyone has to be looking at the financial effects. I mean, it's been a, a long period of time with very low interest rates. Um, it's challenging the business models, not just of pension funds, but also insurance companies and banks. Uh, we also see no term premium. We see no credit risk premium. We see no um, overall uh, volatility premium. We've got a d equity and real market disconnect if you compare the forecasts for uh, output and then what's happening to equity markets. You know, um, the financial markets have uh, distortions, and that's generating risks. The, uh, the financial markets' distortions in many cases come from central banks. Uh, what's your recommendation uh, at, at this point? Is it time to give up and to raise rates in those countries that can or to stop extraordinary policy in others? So what we've uh, we have noted that um, the balance between costs and benefits uh, has tipped over to the cost side uh, through the channel of distortions and risks. What this says to us is not that central banks uh, should be retreating, but it does say uh, that fiscal policy authorities and legislative authorities who are uh, charged with structural policies, they have to step up. We've been saying this for a while. Uh, the monetary policy authorities have been carrying the burden. They are overburdened. That means the other authorities have to step up. Well, the monetary policy authorities in large measure will say, we stepped up because the fiscal authorities would not. And there's no sign that the fiscal authorities really want to. So should well, the central well, actually, bankers continue to do this? You've, you've, got, you've got some fiscal authorities that actually have stepped up. Um, as I say, Canada has absolutely embraced the uh, notion that uh, they need to do some expansion and as well as uh, structural policies. The United States has indicated that infrastructure is on the docket. Uh, you've got China, um, 
maybe spending on not quite the right things, but they're spending uh, money. You've got Japan, again, some question marks, although they are engaging in both fiscal spending as well as structural reforms. And even in the U.K., you've got some signaling going on about reprioritization of spending towards more infrastructure and hard, uh, hard and soft infrastructure <coughs> in the autumn statement. Right. So we are seeing changes there. We need to see more ambition on structural. Otherwise, we're not going to get to where we need to go, which is higher global growth. Right. Dr. Mann, I'm reading Rogoff's book, The Curse of Cash. It's the shortlist for my book of the year. It's superb, not only on cash and the illegal effects of cash, but corrupt effects, criminal effects, but, of course, also on negative interest rates. I look at Marvin Goodfriend's paper at Jackson Hole on negative interest rates, and particularly Dr. Goodfriend's good work out of Carnegie Mellon is devoid of an understanding of the immediate effect on Deutsche Bank or on BNP Paribas and your Paris or on J.P. Morgan uh, or for that matter, Mike, on Bob Diamond's banks in Africa. When when do the bankers stand up and scream, you got to help us? When do we see that? Well, in Europe, they are screaming and they're looking for they are. more yeah. consolidation. And uh, they're looking for uh, an opportunity to, to move forward with banking union. I mean, Mike, I haven't even looked at Deutsche Bank this morning. Oh, I'm trying to bring um, it up here on the It, it isn't in good official. shape. I mean, it's, it's up, but it's still a very low level. Uh, but does this imply, uh, Kathy, that the central oh. banks should stop going further, put it that way, uh, in, in a general sense, with monetary policy? Has, has it reached its limit? What we say is that um, central banks should look very carefully at the costs and benefits of any increase in their unconventional uh, means. Now, there may be other things that they can do, more rabbits that they can pull out of the hat. But uh, basically, Mm -hmm. uh, the traction that you get for the real economy relative to the risks that you create in the financial side, that's unbalanced. I want to congratulate you, Dr. Mann, on your paper. It is just, folks, it's like 10 pages long. Uh, maybe nine and a half pages long, and the charts are just off the uh, charts. We didn't even have time to, to, to raising are. trade intensity in terms of boosting product growth. Dr. Mann mentioned that early in the interview. Catherine Mann, thank you so much with the OECD. I'm going to tweet out this report uh, when I get time to it, uh, everybody's attention. The charts, Mike, just exquisite. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.